You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Love those words. Thank you, Amber. Amber's a member of our missions board, and I think you kind of got that flavor in there, didn't you? That the church is much more than just what we see here on Sunday mornings. So quick confession, I fell into a Pinterest wormhole this last week. And no, I'm not too proud to admit that I use Pinterest. There, it's okay. Um, now, Mandy was visiting her folks in Chicago, and so in the evenings, I'm sitting like, well, what am I going to do? It's just, you know, scrolling through Pinterest. Celebrity plastic surgery has gone wrong. This is like an hour of my life I'm never going to get back. Complete waste of time. And you know what it is? It's, you know, it's actors and actresses that, you know, for whatever reason, decided like, well, we're going to, you know. And then there's like the before and the after, you know, and you're just like, oh, gosh, you know. But the funny thing was, it wasn't just the before and after shots. That's not where the real craziness was. The real craziness was in the comments. And there was a consistent theme in the comments. It kind of went something like this. Gosh, they were so beautiful before, or he was so handsome before, they were just fine the way they were. Why did they do that? This isn't a comment about plastic surgery as much as it is to say that often, who we think we should be prevents us from becoming who God actually made us to be. I think that's in our personal lives as well as maybe in the church. So here's something that bothers me. I'll share this with you. You might feel a similar burden. I wonder, as a church, we're so prepared for, maybe we're so obsessed with, you might say, we've talked so much about external threats, things like cultural collapse and moral implosion, right, and the shifting sands that are going to lead to persecution. Those may happen, okay, may, but I think maybe we have become blind to a more insidious, slower, harder to detect, but nonetheless very real threat Not necessarily persecution from without, but redefinition from within. So, that's where we're going today. This is week four in our Isn't She Lovely teaching series, a a quick look at the church. Week one, remember we were in Acts chapter two. This is the church's scrapbook, the baby book in her idealistic infancy. Week two, we took a look maybe, and you could say, in her tumultuous toddlerdom. That's the right word. I don't know if that's a word or not. We're in body life looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. How, do, how should we relate to each other as a church? Last week, Pastor Alex did a marvelous job saying that really the church doesn't have a mission, but the mission has a church. So it's a wonderful, fantastic insight. And so here's where we're going today. Enemies and essentials. What are some of the enemies of the church? And maybe past the obvious ones, what are those things that maybe cause us to redefine ourselves from within in a way that's maybe not what God has for us. So today, looking at the New Testament, I want to walk through three threats or three enemies to the church's beauty. And there are more, but these are three that I think are most, most timely for us. And I want to help us stay vigilant against them. And my hope is that taking a look at these and seeing what they are, we might stay true to who Jesus calls his church to be. You with me? 
All right, let's get to it. Enemy number one, you could call it competition. Competition. Competition sounds like this. We are the only church doing it right. And so for this, we're going to head to the book of Philippians, okay? So you can get to Philippians chapter 1. Two things you need to know about Philippians, first and foremost. Paul's writing Philippians when he's in prison, okay? So the easy way to remember that is Paul, Philippians, prison. They all start with the letter P. He's writing it in prison. He's in prison because he's been preaching the gospel in a world that is harsh to the gospel, and so he's paying the consequences for that. Second thing you need to know about Philippians, though, is that Philippians is one of the most pleasurable books that Paul wrote. So another way to remember that is Paul, Philippians, pleasurable. The PPP right there. So the idea there is that this is a letter that, unlike 1 Corinthians, unlike Galatians, there is nothing like castigating in Philippians. There's no, or, there are no harsh words. This is like his favorite little, beautiful, joyful, fragile little church. It's a great word, especially when you consider that he's in prison and he's still finding pleasure in the church. But here's the situation. So Paul's in prison, and while he's stuck there, Paul hears some troubling news going on in Philippi. He catches wind that there are people who are making disciples of Jesus, but they're doing it differently than he would have. Because they're different people than Paul is. Yes, they're preaching in the name of Jesus. Yes, they're actually having church, but there's something not quite right about what's happening in Philippi in Paul's absence. In what way? It turns out that those that are preaching the gospel in Paul's absence are doing it, he finds out, for selfish reasons. Their mixed motivation is troubling the young church. And rightly so. Now here's the thing. You think, I would think, that from behind the prison bars, Paul would write... And he would say, look, someone's got to be where I cannot be. Someone's got to rise up and defend. These other teachers are like seeping into the church and they're causing you confusion. Discipleship's not about gain. It's not about platform. It's not about ego. That's how I would have written the letter. Here's the thing. There are churches all over Stark County. And there are some churches that you might look at And you might be tempted to go, ah, it's just a show. There's some people that look at our church and think that. There's some pastors or preachers that you might see and you go, gosh, man, it just seems like a big ego boost. Some people look at this pastor and say that. What ought to be our posture toward different churches in our proximity as it relates to the gospel? How should we think about different churches? Are we the only ones doing it right? Here's Paul's answer. Take a look in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Here's what he says. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Do you hear him sifting through preachers there? Verse 16. The latter, so those out of goodwill, Do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So the latter, those preaching Christ from goodwill, those are my bros, okay? Well, how about the other ones? Verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Harsh words. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Harsh words. What's he mean? We'll hang here for just a minute. 
He has in mind those preachers who preach Christ under the guise of gospel proclamation, but are really in it for themselves. So who are these guys? Interesting phrase, that phrase selfish ambition in verse 17 is one word in Greek, and it means insincere. Well, that's hardly a sin, Paul, come on. It's also used, though, get this, to describe the way that a prostitute would solicit a man to sleep with her. Kind of takes on a different meaning. More softly, the word is used to describe a day laborer who just wants the money. They're not in it for the cause, they're just doing it for the dollars. And so these are preachers that Paul has in mind that are greedy time clock punchers at best, manipulative seducers at worst. But let's not lose sight of what he's saying. He says, they preach Christ. That's an interesting insight. The content is the gospel. You go to their church on Sunday morning, you're going to hear about Jesus. The problem isn't their content, it's their character. The problem isn't what they're saying, the problem is who they are. As one commentator put it, these teachers were self-seeking opportunists, promoting themselves at Paul's expense. Perhaps they had enjoyed some prominence in the church before Paul arrived, but had been eclipsed since he came to the city By taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment, they may have hoped to recover their former popularity. So these are the guys with the Lear Jets, the rock star image, leveraging Christ to sell themselves. And sitting hundreds of miles away, chained to a Roman guard, with his dearest church under threat of insincere leaders. What's Paul's opinion of these guys? Here is his answer, verse 18. What then... Which, if you read Paul, you know he has a lawyer's way of putting a speed bump in the middle of a thought. It's great. What then, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What? The message puts it like this. So how am I to respond? I've decided I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed, and so I just cheer him on. Wow. Not how I would have taken this, Paul. Paul, protect your flock, dude. Like, what's going on here? This is a blazing spotlight shining full on Paul's values. The gospel is too important to cloud the issue by insisting on personal, petty differences. Life is too short, and people are too precious. That's some remarkable security, isn't it? Now, what does that mean for us? Here's the principle. Gospel proclamation. The idea that, yes, we were created originally to be in union with God. That's part of our creation. But sin mars that. We're all subject to what's called the fall. We're all sinners, one and all. God gives us Christ to undo the curse of the fall, to bring us back into a restored, right relationship with him. That's the crux of the gospel. That ought to be the central message of any church, if it's going to be called a church. And if it is, personal preferences, personal grievances, personal tastes, all take a back seat. You see how that redefines things a little bit? 
Churches are not just like spiritual versions of McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King. <laughs> like concerned about each other's market expansion, boxing each other out for market share. McDonald's over here thinking that, well, if a burger that you ate at Wendy's is a burger you didn't eat at McDonald's, right? And so what we got to do is we got to create a better product, a better experience, and beat the competition. Some churches may think that way, but Paul doesn't seem to, and so neither should we. And remember, that's the worst-case scenario. Selfish, insincere, driving selfish, insincere ministries. And I can honestly say, I don't know too many churches or preachers like that in North Canton. You might, but I don't. And I know that motives are hard to see, and yes, there are important theological differences, which we're going to talk about a little more next week. But I'd lock arms with a lot of other churches. Keep the gospel the main thing. Now, here's why I bring all this up and why we're starting here. If you've come to North Canton Chapel from another church, which I know many of you have, two very quick, practically, hopefully freeing things that I want to hear for you. Whatever the reason you left, it's very important that you leave well. We're going to talk about how to leave a church next week. Sidebar, like, I've been in church for 42 years, and I've never heard a sermon about that. And I'm going to give you advice that I hope you never take. <laughs> but I'm serious. Like, whatever it means, when you leave a church family, that usually involves a sense of loss, right? There's pain. That's hard. When people leave a church family, that's hard. It could, that, that loss could show itself as anger or sadness or frustration or pain or silence but my word to you, just to somebody who loves you, is please do not stuff that loss. It's very important that you, you do that well. But then, second thing, and this, I hope you hear me on this one, if you've got friends or family that are in another church, that's not a bad thing, okay? There's no sense of like, oh, they're traitors. No. The question is, are they growing in Christ? If they're growing in the Lord, if they're being discipled, if they're hearing the gospel message preached, I just cheer them on. Let's do the thing. We're going to be sitting at the same communion table in a few decades anyway when Jesus serves us communion. So let's just do the on earth as it is in heaven thing, okay? Here's why I feel it's important to bring that all up. Because I want North Canton Chapel to value what Paul values. Christ and Christ alone. Just the gospel. The only competition that any thoughtful Christian should be concerned about is between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The enemy of humanity and the redeemer of humanity. The one that wants you to stay stuck in your sin and the one who wants to free you from your sin. That's what Paul's talking about. The gospel trumps everything. Well, aren't there distinctives? Yes, there are. I'm going to talk about those next week. But that's threat number one or enemy number one, competition. This idea of competition naturally flows over into number two. We call contention. Contention. Contention is the internal version of what competition is externally. Okay, so if competition says, look out there, we have enemies out there and we got to beat them. Contention is a little bit harsher because it looks inward and go, there's people in here. Hmm. Contention shows up in a lot of ways, but here's what we got to see. Contention comes at a higher cost than most of us realize. And we've seen this in the last few years, haven't we? And for this, I want to head to John chapter 17. So slide back a couple of pages in your Bible to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. I remember 
when I was a freshman at Moody Bible Institute. I was 19 years old in the spring of my freshman year, and I, was, I found myself in an upstairs library reading, and I found myself to John 17, and I was blown away. And I think you're going to see why. John 17, this whole chapter is Jesus praying for those who will follow him. Remarkably tender window into Jesus' prayer life. And guess who he prays for? Us. Did you know Jesus prays for you? Here's the scene. It's the night before the crucifixion. Literally Jesus' last day. If it was your last day on earth, what would you do? Jesus prays. And he thinks about his disciples, his core team, these guys that he just invested three years plus in. What's he do? What are going to be your last words, your last pep talk, your last huddle? And he prays for them. What parting words does he give? John 17, verse 1. Here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he had just been teaching them, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So this is Jesus saying, all right, Father, I know it's go time. Here we go. Slide on down a few verses to verse 14. Now he prays for his disciples. He says, I have given them, meaning his disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of this world. Just like I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, which would have been my prayer, by the way. <laughs> Save us from this terrible thing. Ah, Jesus doesn't want that. But that you keep them from the evil one. Slide down to verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now those are his disciples. Just this beautiful prayer of protection. But then the lens widens. Verse 20 I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, stop. So now he was praying for the 12, well, 11, okay? But then he imagines a time, not just them, but those who will believe through their word, and those who will believe, and those who will, and this endless parade of disciples through time that includes us. So now Jesus is about to pray something different. Verse 21, here's what he says. And this is the verse on which this entire picture hangs. I pray that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a ton in here. We're going to break this down. First, there's the content of the prayer. Jesus prays what? He prays that we might be one, unified. But then there's the measure of the content. Okay, the content, but then the measure. Well, how? How unified, Jesus? Just like kumbaya around a campfire on a retreat? No. How? Just as the Father and I are one. I mean, I've got some pretty close friendships, but that's pretty close. That's the measure of the content. But then, the reason for the prayer, and this is what we have to see. Why? Here's the purpose word that should jump off the page to you. That the world may believe that you have sent me. Here's Jesus' point. The unity of the church opens the door for the conversion of the lost. 
The greatest apologetic for a lost world is a church that is at one with each other. Put negatively, when a watching world sees a divided church, their capacity for belief diminishes. Eternity can look different because of how the church handles unity. Do you see the cost of contention? Thinking about the cost of contention, Justin Benge writes in his book, The Loveliest Place, without this unity, the world is likely to see the church as a human organization devised by creative ingenuity, not a body of divine origin. Discord plagues man-made institutions. Jesus is praying that when the world views the church, it will see not a man-made organization, but a divine organism born of God. The church's growing oneness is what defines the church as having otherness. And then here's the question that should send us all to our knees. Why would the world be supernaturally drawn to an institution filled with conflict, cliques, hostility, fighting, and division? <sighs> Remember when everybody was mad about COVID? Remember when people were willing to lose friendships over that? Remember how we all lost sleep reading hours and hours of whatever dribble was on the internet? Remember when your stance on vaccines was the watershed issue for where you attended church? And now that most of that is behind us, now that most of that is in the rearview mirror, doesn't it all seem so unworthy? <laughs> Some people posted their opinions while others were grieving their spouses. And the fact that Jesus' church is still here, that fact ought to sober us, humble us, focus us, and cause us to calm the heck down. Because there will be other storms, and they will be bigger. And we will have need in those days to draw on the lessons of our memory to remind us that we are a people whose contention is more costly and whose unity is more precious than we ever might imagine. Do you want to reach people in a lost, but for now still watching world, keep the gospel the main thing. If we are right in our opinion, but contentious in how we hold our opinion, we are wrong. Let's get practical. So how does contention show up in the church? Three ways. First is maybe the most obvious. The New Testament uses the word agitator. Peter uses the word meddler, which I kind of like. It's a little bit like sneakier. I have like the guy on the railroad tracks going, <laughs> right? It means a false guardian, a fight picker, a would-be revolutionary. These are the kind of people that aren't happy unless they're miserable. <laughs> and you know the type. They pick fights because they're bored. They need a hobby. They need to get on with discipleship. Get on with the things that are important in life. When Christians align themselves with a cause other than Christ, that alignment always comes with a high and dangerous price tag. That's the first way contention shows up, just like an agitator, like, yeah. Second one, though, is a more subtle version of contention. Proverbs 16, 28 puts it like this. Proverbs 16, 28. Maybe it's up there. There he goes. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. I take this to mean you don't have to be angry to be divisive. You don't have to be a jerk to be contentious. 
You just have to place a carefully crafted word in a very eager ear. Where you say what you say, how you say what you say, and who you say it to usually reveals why you're saying it in the first place. And if you've been in church long enough, you know how this stuff works. But the third way that contention shows up in a church, I think this is the hardest to spot, and this is the one that for me, like it, it's actually the hardest to deal with from my own experience. <laughs> Sometimes contention shows up in silence. It's who I don't say hi to anymore. It's the text I don't want to respond to. It's who I don't want to be around. It's who I avoid. It's who I resist. I call this contention by omission. It's an easier one to identify with. Because I know what happened. You just did what I did when I was going through this list in my brain. I go to the first one. I'm like, well, I'm not like an insurrectionist, so cross that one off the list. I don't really gossip, so cross that one off the list. And then we come to this one, and you're going, Pastor, you jerk. And I go, yeah, because like this one's me, all right? If I have a problem with you, I'm going to avoid you. Like that's just my particular poison. Here's the thing, though. In a church our size, contention by omission is very possible, isn't it? It's why large churches are hard, because you can skate. You could go years without ever having to do the hard work of relational restoration. Here's the principle behind this last one, though. Wounds left unaddressed rarely heal themselves. Most of the time they get worse. So no matter which one of those three contentions are your poison of choice, here's the point that I think needs to be said. Unity takes work. It's hard. It doesn't just happen. It's why Paul, in Ephesians, where we're going to be in this summer, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Oh, gosh, that sounds like work. Mm. <laughs> and again, Why? What did Jesus say? That the world may know. Is it hard work? You bet it is. You love lost people? Hope so. Enemy number three. So we got competition, contention, and then this last one is consumerism. Here's the idea. This is a vision of a church where the church is the business, the congregation are the customers, and the pastors and staff are service providers to give you whatever you want. The tithe, by the way, is your investment in this model. I actually had somebody say to me once upon a time, seriously, they said, I've given a lot of money to this church over the years, and here's what I want you to do. I went like, we got to kind of do a little define the relationship here, because I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's not how you do things. When you love something, you don't hold it for hostage. So that's consumerism. And it's really easy to slide into this kind of thinking. Why? Because our whole world works this way. Why would the church be any different? But it is different, and I want to show you why. So to counteract consumerism, slide on over to 1 Corinthians again. So we've been in Philippians and John 17. Now we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 really quick. We told you about Corinth over a week ago. I think it was in first, first week, or two weeks ago now. The church in Corinth has gotten off track, and Paul wants to get them back on track. And so to do that, he tells them a story. He tells them the story of their, his ministry when he was there. This is a great insight into Paul. He pops the hood on the car, and he goes, I want you to see how this whole thing called my ministry works. This is Paul. It's brilliant. He wants them to know what he didn't do, what he didn't say, and why. 
Here's Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The idea here is simply, you expected eloquence, you expected persuasion, and I didn't give it to you. Why? Why didn't I give them what they wanted, Paul, you crusty curmudgeon? <laughs> Answer, verse 2. For, there's his purpose, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I talked about one thing. I was obsessed with one thing. One thing got the lead billing. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Three words that never show up on a pastor's search committee's list, by the way. Verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Nobody's LinkedIn profile starts with that. But in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. I was uneloquent, unimpressive, unpersuasive. Well, why sell yourself short, Paul? This kind of sounds a little like false humility. No need to fall on your sword here. Clearly you've got a brilliant legal mind. You're a wonderful writer, Paul. You're not slow. You're not illogical. You've got vision. You've got insight. So why the short sell? Why play the over-modest, aw-shucks, Jimmy Stewart shtick? So in anticipation of their and our question, here is Paul's response. Verse 5. What's he say? So that... Why did I do all this? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is such an incredibly wise word and a massive insight into what Paul values as a pastor. And it's a value that I want so much for our church and for your life. Paul imagines a day when the Corinthians' faith would be rocked to their foundation. And he wants to make sure that the foundation is not gimmicks. He wants to make sure that the foundation is not himself. He wants something stronger, more lasting, better, deeper. So that signals the reason why Paul takes the approach that he does, and his reason is so well put. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is Paul going, look, when I came to you, I could have given you incredible speeches. I know how to do that. I could have given you Loctite lawyer logic. I know how to do that too. I could have sold you, dazzled you, tantalized you with all the tools and the tactics, the tricks and the trends, but I willingly chose to hide myself, obscure myself behind one better, lasting thing. A much more meaningful, transformative idea. The gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because when push comes to shove and your life is against the rocks, do you know what you're not going to be thinking about? how great a sermon may have been, or how great the show was, how great the event was, how riveting. When life knocks you over, one thing matters. Is your faith real? And so this is Paul saying, it would be unkind of me to allow you to build your faith on anything other than Christ and him crucified. Everything else fades, he lasts, nothing else works, he satisfies. Everyone else is going to leave you, he never will. Incidentally, I'm going to pull off for a second. Do you know how great it is for our church that our church grew when I wasn't here for three months on sabbatical? Do you understand how significant that is? Not for me, but for our church. 
You can miss me fine, but you don't need me. Because this is not a church about a man. This is a church in love with a Savior. Praise God for that reality. And here's why we need to remember this. Because it is possible to grow a church and never make disciples. It is possible to fill a room and never expand the kingdom. You could give thousands of your dollars, hundreds of your hours, a bunch of your life energy to something that doesn't satisfy because it can't. And in Corinth, Paul was wise enough not to play the consumer game because he knows that giving people what they want is often a short-term win, long-term loss. And here's the reason. There's actually a better, more beautiful, harsher reason, I think, to not play the consumerism game in church. And it has to do with Jesus. Consumerism is ultimately a giant bait and switch. Here's what I mean. There's an old principle that drives a lot of my thinking as a pastor around this conversation, and it goes like this. What you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. Now, here's what that means. I'm going to sound like a terrible pastor for just a second. My greatest goal for you is not to get you in church. My greatest goal for you is not to listen to sermons. My greatest goal for you is not to give your money or volunteer your time. My greatest goal for you as someone who loves you deeply is to get you to Jesus. But here's the catch. Here's how Isaiah describes Jesus. Isaiah 53 he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So if I win you with gimmicks, if we try and play the initially impressive game just to get you in the door, and then I have to introduce you to a savior who says, Come and die. You want to find your life? Be willing to lose it. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then we'll talk. What I've done then is I just created a giant bait and switch. You see that? I've hooked you. I've sold you. I've bamboozled you into a Christless version of Christianity. And because I love you, I can't do that. That'd be so unkind of me. When we make church something that Jesus isn't, we cripple faith and we stifle growth. And so the method of the church must be consistent with the message of the Savior. What you win them with is what you win them to. The church is not in the customer service industry because customer service Jesus doesn't exist. Now does that mean, though, the church should be this like humdrum, boring, drab, gray-tinged, kind of a thing. Of course not. Or that Jesus is this like faceless, dour philosopher. No, because the same Jesus who appeared like that also said, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. Another way of thinking about that is you think you were alive before me. Oh man, just wait till what I do with your life when you follow me. But Jesus is sneaky, isn't he? I don't mean that to be disrespectful, but when you read the gospel, Whenever he interacts with spiritually curious people, did you notice how he gets at the heart? It's really miraculous. John chapter 4, woman at the well. You know that story. She says, I want water. And Jesus goes, yeah, I know. I know you think you do. You want water, and we'll get that for you. But what you need is living water. Can we talk about that? Then a crowd of people on the hillside, they say, Jesus, we're hungry. And he gives them bread, what they wanted. And then he says, hey, on the subject of bread, 
um, that mouthful that you just ate, you're going to need another one in a few hours. Can we talk about how I'm, the, how I'm the bread of life? And then like the ultimate example of anti-consumerism, the cross itself. We're going to celebrate communion here in just a few moments, but I want you to think about this. The cross itself is the anti-consumerism exclamation point. Because the people are saying, all right, we want a savior who will heal our wounds, send the Romans packing, and give us back our culture. And Jesus says, you may think you want that, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die for you, and in disappointing your hopes of what you think you want, I'm going to heal a wound that you've had so long you can't even remember it. It's called sin. And then I'm going to conquer an enemy that you can never imagine. I'm actually going to step on his head, that stupid snake. And then I'm going to achieve a victory that you could never dream about. And oh, my people, it's going to look like such a failure to you. It's going to look like death won. But I've got to disappoint you so I can deliver you. I've got to frustrate you before I can save you. I'm going to die to make you live. And that's the gospel. Nothing you wanted, but everything that we needed. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 1.18 when he says this. For the word of the cross, which we're going to celebrate in a few moments, is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Translation, no one is going to understand this. They're going to think you have lost your mind. You follow a kooky savior and you belong to a broken church. They're going to think you're crazy. They're going to think that you are gone. And they're going to think that Right up until the moment when God calls them, he opens their eyes and the light of the gospel shines into their hearts. Jesus has the audacity to suggest three things that are either bold and true or bold and blasphemous. That I should be very suspicious of my wants. I'm a terrible God in my own life. You notice how offensive that is to a world that values self more than anything? But then secondly, that if I had the courage to look past my wants, I would actually see my needs. Go figure. And then that Jesus fulfills all of my needs perfectly. That is either bold and true or bold and blasphemous. So we're going to head into communion. But before we do, I want to leave us with three questions. So deacons, you guys can come on up. And I offer these questions to you as conversation fodder for your community group, maybe tonight or later this week. Or if you're the journaling type, you can take these home and journal uh, or maybe you just want to use them as prayer points. So here's the first one. Concerning competition, first enemy of the church that we talked about, is there anything more precious to you than the gospel? And I know our knee-jerk reaction is to say no. But seriously, ask yourself the question, what else is worth dividing over? I can't think of a thing. Concerning contention, we said that unity is precious and that contention is costly. So here's the question, what's really wrong with our world and who will really fix it? What's worth losing sleep over? What message comes out of my mouth? Last one, consuming consumerism. And this is the hardest one, I think. Are you willing to follow a savior who denies what you want in favor of what you need? Because that's what this celebration is. This is saying, Lord, you give me what I need. Not always what I want. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, 
It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.